the constant question for me is how do you live a life that's grounded in values of purpose? And it took me a while to sort out how to play that. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Michael Trail has an unusual ability to span worlds. I first got to know him while attending the Centre for Independent Studies Concilium events, where I felt like I might be the only non-libertarian in the room, until I met Michael. Trained at Melbourne University and Harvard Business School, Michael was recruited by David Clark to work at Macquarie Bank. Macquarie, known as the Millionaire's Factory, was a place where people worked on big corporate deals, or well remunerated for it. But in 2002, Michael shifted from the world of money to the world of philanthropy, becoming the first head of Social Ventures Australia. He's just written a book about his life called Jumping Ship. So let's use that as our jumping off point today. Michael, you start your book Jumping Ship with the story of Paddy, an 11-year-old player in the Willoughby Wildcats. Can you tell me the story and why it was an important turning point for you? That story about Paddy was a bit of an epiphany moment, Andrew. I was a kid who grew up in country Victoria, loved playing footy. My father coached me and I had a bit of a parallel track. I loved finding time to coach my boys playing Aussie Rules footy. And so my eldest son, Christopher, was playing with the Willoughby Wildcats, a very underrated force in the North Shore Junior Footy League. <laughs> and uh, there was a commitment that meant a lot. And uh, I always managed to find time to do that in the middle of the uh, private equity work at Macquarie that I was doing. And I remember vividly, it was 2001, the business was progressing well, we'd raised a $200 million fund. In fact, we're in the process of doing the homework on what was going to be a $20 million investment opportunity, which in those days was a pretty big deal for us. Normally at that period of time, you're sweating on the deal, you're worrying about have you done the homework, have you done the due diligence? And we were due this weekend to go to the investment committee seeking approval for this uh, management buyout in a company called Repco, the automotive parts business. But I have a vivid recollection of waking up on, uh, on a Saturday morning at about six o'clock in the morning. And I was thinking about positional changes in the Wildcats. And I was thinking specifically about a cracker young boy called Paddy. And uh, Paddy was a kid I'd become very close to. I knew from his dad that he'd faced a few challenges at school um, to the point where he'd even wagged school. But he was a brilliant athlete, great footballer, cracker footballer. But he'd been quiet for a couple of weeks and I was worried about him. I was thinking, gee, what do I do with Paddy? Do I move him to full forward? Do I make him captain for the day? And as I reflected on that, I was thinking, there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a message in this. You know, I've got a pretty significant deal going on, but I'm actually waking up thinking about positional changes in my kids' footy team. There's a, there's a deeper meaning for this. And um, you know, there was a real sense that, that I, what I was 
passionate about was the idea that perhaps I could have a positive influence on the, on the life of a young boy who I knew faced challenges at school because I knew how much from him and his dad he got a lift in self-esteem from his footy. So that Paddy story was an important, um, really kind of epiphany moment. You know, it made me really think about what, what, what do I do because I love waking up being passionate about what I'm doing and I'd had a great run at Macquarie Bank. But in little and big ways, I think the introspection and thinking about what was actually going on with me at that point when I was 41 years old, having had a, then a, a, a long, pretty successful career at Macquarie Bank was the catalyst for jumping ship. So that's the turning point between those, those two worlds. Let's now rewind a little bit and, and tell me about your childhood growing up in uh, the Latrobe Valley. Yes, yeah, so my childhood was growing up in the valley in Moore, population 17,000. So Moore will now probably would be regarded as one of those kind of postcodes of disadvantage. I don't remember it that way. I mean, it was a community that had its challenges and there were certainly places and in the footy parlance, there were, there were kids you didn't want to play against, particularly when they came from Maui, which was a very tough part of the world. And but uh, my father was a high school teacher and principal. He was the first in four generations to go past year 10 at school. Both my brother and I grew up in an environment where love looked after very, very well by our parents, both of whom valued education deeply. But I think as, as we all are, it's the Jesuit cliche, show me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man. Well, the boy at seven was a kid who was part of the fabric of the community, parents deeply involved in that community, loved his sport. And in that journey at Morwell, I think what I realised in hindsight is that I had all of the free kicks of love of family, great values around education. Uh, both my brother and I are proud products of the state education system. We were at Morwell High School. But I know that there were a bunch of kids there and I was in class with them. You know, bright, capable kids where they didn't have the free kicks that Barry and I had in terms of emphasis on education, in terms of a really stable connected family life and they were kids who you look back on now 35 years down the track and they had every capacity to succeed at university or, or wherever they wanted to go but in different ways the community the school their families didn't engender in them the high expectations that I kind of think now they should they should have, they should have had so they were the they were the shaping influences I think I think you say in your book about your friend Ross Fitzgerald uh, describing your parent, describing your parents, and saying, "Gee, Trailer, you uh, won the lottery of life with that with them." Well, I think that, I think that very much captures it. You know, you, you you look at the sweep of history, and and as as a parent now, you realise what a, what a free kick it is to grow up where just unequivocally you're loved by your parents. They're around. They're engaged in what you do. They're engaged in the community. So. You look back on that and I think the older you get, the less you take for granted that loving, stable family life. Uh, parents both with a very strong set of values around family, around community. And I think those things get imprinted on your DNA in little and big ways. And you're uh, an AFL player and a runner as well. Uh, what drew you to running? I was very much uh, a kid who just loved sport and I loved to run. I think. I, my father was a, a, a very good athlete. He was a, a top-notch VFL uh, footballer who played a lot of really good country footy. And this was in the days when a lot of the good VFL players, as they then were, went into the country. And he was being chased by St Kilda to play with them. But he liked, I think he liked being in the country. Very good tennis player, good runner. 
So I, I grew up steeped in that and running, playing Aussie rules. The weekends were just full of sport and I think that idea of that being something I love to compete. I love the sense of uh, getting out and exercising. I've always had a bit of an addiction to, to running and to, and to being fit and so that naturally correlated into middle distance running, playing Aussie rules as a runner's game and I, and I took up umpiring at a relatively young age and you know weekends would typically consist when I was in my teenage years of a hybrid of playing footy and umpiring games and in the summer it'd be it'd be tennis and running so that was the you know that was the sporting diet. Do you have a favourite running race that sticks in your mind? The big one for me and I, I reflect this in the book is that I was uh, kind of an OCD kid, really, when I look about it. I was a bit of a running obsessive. I devoured running biographies of my heroes at the time, people like uh, Peter Snell, who was the triple New Zealand Olympic gold medalist, and a very close friend of my father's, Merv Lincoln, who was best man at Dad's wedding and vice versa, was the number two miler in the world. He was a, he was a great, great hero. And so what I, even at 11 and 12, I was trying to replicate the intensive training programs that some of these guys were doing. So I was probably overdoing it and actually in truth taking it a little bit too seriously. So what tended to happen, I'd be reasonably successful and uh, win most of the things that were going at a, at a regional level. But when it came to the state championships, I kind of I was a bit rabid in the spotlight. I'd get too nervous and not go well. And so I had a series of races, the big deal in little athletics, which I took very seriously were the under 11 under 12 state championships. And while my training and, and form would suggest I probably should have finished, if not in the top two, certainly in kind of medal form, um, but that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because I actually didn't really run at my, at my best when it, when it mattered because I was too nervous in both the under 11 and under 12 uh, races. And then my last event was the state cross country championships under 12. And my father, who was a pretty good amateur psychologist, a couple of months before it, he said, look, you're in a really strong year. And it was true. There were a couple of other really good runners in the year. But he said, you know, a top, a top six, top ten finish is, is terrific. You know, you're really, uh, you're really taking it a bit seriously. Just relax. Um, and, and I did, you know, and that was a race where I felt comfortable the whole way, was very competitive, and uh, I won a silver medal. And as I reflect in the book, I think um, that would be one thing I'd kind of want to take into the afterlife if you want to have a choice because it meant it actually meant a lot probably too much in hindsight really <laughs> but it's interesting though my, my father is, is uh, running he's a little little older than than you are but very much shaped I think by the force of Percy Serity and that uh, uh, incredibly tr intense train till you vomit run up the sand hills philosophy and I finished reading a book recently by Dick Telford, who's a running coach at the AIS, who says, well, yes, Serity produced good results, but when you look at the careers of his athletes, including Herb, Herb Elliott, they're remarkably short. It's almost as though he managed to get them a, a level of success, but not to engender the lifelong love of, of running. And so I wonder whether maybe you took some of the lessons of Serity, but then added your dad added on the important stuff about just relax and enjoy it. But I think there's a, there's fascinating turf in that conversation. And Serity, I must say, as an aside and probably an indication of how obsessive I was, Serity had a training camp called Ceres, and I and I stayed there when I was twelve in a training camp. And you'd have Percy, who was as you 
indicated the most eccentric bugger. He was at this stage <laughs> in his mid-70s. He'd give you the what he'd call Percy's rant, which would be an exhortation to basically kill yourself on the track. I got to sleep in John Landy's bunk. I trained on the sand hills that Elliot uh, was involved in. But yeah, no, it was, it was very intense. And Elliot, as is well documented, retired undefeated at the age of 22. So I think arguably, while the times are different and he couldn't have made the money or established the career that now is an option for the serious athletes, there's a, I think you make a reasonable case that some sort of balance around that obsession and uh, you cross the line between something that you're good at but obsessive about but you don't enjoy. I think I always did in, enjoy it and I think Dad had a, a good sense of perspective around sportsmanship and the fact that you this was about being fit and enjoying yourself. I think the other lesson, which was a big one and very positive about athletics that served me well in other areas of life, even through those, those hybrid mini tragedies of not doing well in the state championships was that life can be, you, you've got to have a go, that generally if you have a go, you'll get rewarded, but you'll, there'll be disappointments and you, you, know, you kind of dust yourself off and pick yourself up. And I have an unashamed bias that I do think um, it can come in other ways, but for people, who give sport a crack, the lessons around that are, are pretty powerful. That the idea that you need to work hard, that there's reward for effort, and you know, that then they're not they're not serious tragedies, but they knock people around when they don't do what they're expected to do, and you've got to pick yourself up. And I think the lessons out of that in other areas professionally have served me pretty well. Do you still run? I do run occasionally. You know, one of the legacy issues of that is I've got a osteoarthritic um, hip, so I have to run very carefully. And in fact I ran reasonably hard until my mid-30s and didn't run then for a period of 17 or 18 years. And uh, I got involved in a bunch of other exercise forms that were non-weight bearing, so cycling and, and swimming and rowing, which I really enjoyed. And actually that taught me a lesson that in my midlife particularly as I followed my kids into sports that they're passionate about, like surfing and rowing, that um, A, in your middle years, you learn things bloody slowly, which is really frustrating. B, that the capacity to try and rewire your brain and, and do something in the spirit of fitness is actually a great learning experience. And I think that broadened my horizons on sport and life and was a great way to connect to the kids and things that they really enjoyed as well. What's the hardest sport you tried to pick up with your kid, alongside your kids? Uh, rowing and surfing were tough. I mean, each of my, each of my, uh, my darlings can tell you amusing stories at my expense in rowing about me falling out of a single skull and looking like <laughs> a goose in the particularly unattractive rowing gear or my uh, very very uh, talented surfing son sort of reluctantly trying to push me onto waves and giving me instructions about which waves to get and which not to so I think there's a there's a particular joy for for children as they grow older in being able to share their wisdom and knowledge with their parents and um, my kids have certainly had that opportunity to do that with me. It's important. I noticed you um, you referred to your boys as your darlings. A mate of mine uh, once said to me, uh, I, I, I referred to one of my sons as darling and uh, he said, no, you've got to stop that. You know, you'll, they'll get teased, teased at school. You've got to start calling them to, uh, sort of mates or, or some, some variant of that. But you use darling for your sons? Yeah, look, I, th I think that the idea of that sort of depth of affection, I mean, I think in the, in the preface to the book, I talk about there's a Chinese proverb about the inexplicable love that parents have for their kids. I was on the receiving end of that, and I hope to be able to pass that through to some of my kids. And I think the idea 
And it's an Australian thing that, uh, you know, there's this culture that you don't express love. Uh, I don't think it's a, a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing. In fact, you know, one of the things I remember is, as you know, I have some um, great political heroes while they're challenging in some respects. One of the things I always recall about the Kennedys being an aficionado of JFK and particularly Bobby Kennedy was the visible love that they were always shown by their father. It was a tough love, but it was physically evident. They hugged each other at things. And in the 60s and 50s, this was not a cool thing to do, but I thought mm. there was something beautiful about that. And you talk too about how a year into Social Ventures Australia, your then 10-year-old daughter, Anna, uh, you asked her for a performance appraisal and she said, well, it's uh, fine, but I think I preferred it when you were uh, picking me up from school every Friday afternoon. How does something like that hit you? That was a bit of a second wake-up call because one of the lessons that uh, came through very powerfully, and not surprising perhaps given the nature of my fairly obsessive personality, is that I jumped ship into a role where I was working really 24-7 and there was a bit of a, a misperception, um, understandably, to the, to the irritation of my wife where in the last two or three years at Macquarie, I actually had pretty good control of my time. You know, I was taking a day a week, spending time with the kids and, um, you know, lightening the load where, where Jen, my wife, had done really more of the heavy lifting around home and around the kids while juggling a, a full-on professional career at KPMG. And um, so a lot of people were kind of saying nice things about me putting on the hair shirt and working in the non-profit sector. Um, but I think the truth, as with so many of those things, was a little more challenging in terms of where I'd really been dropping the ball at home. You know, there was a startup social enterprise that I was working on. I was traveling a lot. There were funder expectations from our corporate partner that I needed to be interstate a lot. There was a competition being set up and uh, it was full on. And uh, the context for that conversation was about two thirds of the way through the year, me kind of innocently asking Anna, who was about 10, and I think in truth, expecting her to say, yeah, that's great, Dad, because I asked her, what do you think about my new role? And I thought she'd say what most people were saying, which is, oh, that's a really good thing to do, good on you. And she said something very different, uh, which was, yeah, you know, it's okay, but I kind of liked it a bit more last year when you were around more and you picked us up from school on Friday and it was a, it was a gulp moment. It was a moment of recognition that actually I might have been passionate and enjoying what I was doing, but there were some pretty significant trade-offs and, and drop balls. So we will get on to your kind of career in a moment, but I just want to stick on family for a sec because you spoke about in the book how that conversation with Anna uh, then led into a, a really interesting retreat program that you did with your son Christopher when he was 13. And tell us about Pathways to Manhood. Pathways is a remarkable program and it was founded by a guy called Dr. Arna Rubenstein. It was one of the programs that came to us in our first year at Social Ventures. And the idea, put simply, is that in uh, WASP, culture we do a pretty poor job of path of the rite of passage you know the idea that boys particularly going through that challenging stage of puberty in a lot of indigenous cultures that's that's recognized as being a very special transitional transformational period of time in which you know the the, the chemistry of it's pretty challenging testosterone levels go through the roof there's the classic of the two bulls in the paddock which test father-son relationships 
And the indigenous cultures almost universally recognise this and they'll have a combination of things happening where men and boys, fathers and sons in community separate from the existing community. They'll share stories on the basis that in that transitional period, it's often the case for a boy that much as there might be a good relationship and one of love and respect between father and son, great benefit to hear stories and wisdom from other fathers. Um, that's one part of it. The other is the idea in that transitional period, as, as Anna Rubinstein would frame it with testosterone going through the roof, there's a desire to test the boundaries. And, and in unhealthy ways, that can be really high risk behavior, including drug taking. So the idea that part of that separation from community is a, is a physical challenge. And then the notion that there needs to be a recrafted, different sort of relationship. And so values around respect, responsibility, awareness, a core to the work that Arna and his co-founders at Pathways built into this rite of passage program. So structurally what it was is a week where fathers and sons go away with their boys into a remote bush setting. And um, having got to know Arna, we had a lot of respect for him in the program. Although again, like most kind of type A corporate personalities, when I first heard about the program and Arna said, it's not negotiable, it's seven days we treat as contraband mobile phones, writing material, you have to check all of that out. And I was thinking, God, I don't, I don't know how this will play out. And, but it was a remarkable experience. So I did that with my son, Christopher, in 2003. He was 13. And I think my wife, Jen, would say it was a very powerful thing for both of us, particularly for me. And I think in large part because that idea that you were there uh, you're there for your son and for, and for other boys and there's a series of things that the program does incredibly powerfully that encourage really at its core level the sharing of stories and I think the one big big takeaway for me amongst many others was the idea that we have a great tendency or certainly I do or did as a, as a father to preach and lecture the idea that um, your son is going through a transitional period and and there will be periods where he might behave as a, as a child, but if you want to create a different sort of relationship, you have to show respect. You have to be better at listening and creating the space and understanding that. And I think a, a related part of that for me was the idea of being really, uh, somebody who had the capacity to be busy and incredibly self-absorbed, being uh, hopefully out of that experience more thoughtful, more available in terms of some of the history that I would have been guilty of, of you know, compulsive multitasking and thinking that you're available and that you've got quality time because you can focus intensely on things, but relationships and relationships within families don't work that way. I was uh, out of the park the other day with my uh, littlest three-year-old and he was on a tricycle and we were going round and he was doing a little stoplights exercise where he would uh, stop where there were little lines in the pathway uh, and say, red light, stop. And then he would say, green light, go. And I watched him for a while and then I realised what he was doing at the red light stop was he was pulling out his hand and he was stabbing at his hand with his finger. Effectively, he was showing that every time you stop at a red light, then you pull out a mobile phone uh, and, uh, and, 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 and check it. Do you uh, wonder where that came from? And uh, <laughs> quite. And, uh, it was, it was sort of the, the epiphany for me and, uh, and also too I remember reading in your book that, uh, that comment about 
uh, how now when there's other members of the family in the car, you make sure that devices are off and the radio is off. Not to guarantee conversation, but to create the possibility of it. Yeah, that was a big takeaway and it was a, a little thing, but a big thing. And I think trying to enforce that, um, and it does, it, it's just creating the space and that space not, is not always occupied, but often it is. And we had another tradition that came out of some of those program experiences, including pathways and others of what it means to create that space and place of genuine conversation. So one of the traditions which um, we aim to have as regularly as we could for a Sunday night family dinner was what we called highlights and learnings. And that was basically a way of going around the table with the kids and with Jen and I and reflecting on the highlight of the week and the learning of, of the week. And one of the really interesting things is our, is our children are now older, 25, 24 and 20. When we reconvene together as a family, I mean, our, our babies have gone to the, to the four winds, but it's a lovely thing when the family can catch up and we still gravitate back to that. Now, while the conversations can often be when the, when the, when the kids are little, the highlight of, I kicked a goal in the 40 because I can remember that from three hours ago, they are often a platform for difficult, interesting things that come up and, and quite meaty conversations. And I think as a family, we still, we still gravitate back to that. And that can only happen, it can't happen with the TV on in the background. It requires creating that space and place. And again, I think the older that I get, the more you value that opportunity for, for genuine conversation. So going now to your time at Social Ventures Australia, one of the things for which you're, you would be best known is the, the work that you did in creating Good Start out of the ashes of ABC Learning. Uh, there's a huge amount of detail as to how you uh, uh, did that in the book and, uh, and fascinating reading for, uh, for an economist like me. But I wanted to, to ask you at a, at a higher level, what did it mean for you to have helped create Good Start? I, I think for me and the, and the others involved, because it was very much a work of partnership, and actually that was one of the points of, of telling the story in some detail, that at a high level, we have to do a better job in this country of getting people from different sectors to work together in the areas that matter. And so... To answer your question directly, what I would feel good about as a contributing part of is the fact that there's now, because Good Start's been formed, there's now 70,000 kids who are going to learning centres, and they're learning centres, they were childcare centres. That's profoundly different. It's not about making a buck for somebody, although we have to do this with business disciplines for social purpose. It's about, in the most critical area, of the social economy intervening, helping when kids' brains are being formed naught to five, making a difference. And I think there's profound good in that. And I think the reason that we're able to motivate and catalyze action from an incredibly disparate group of players, key politicians, business figures, was that the light on the hill was that we could actually make a difference to those lives, that we could, if we could make good start work and raise the money, prove that at scale you could do, it, do something with business discipline for social purpose. And I think the legacy and really one of the core motives for me in writing the book was that I hope that it catalyzes not just conversation but action because I've always felt strongly that 
with the formation of good start. If it worked, that would be good, but not great. Great is that it becomes a precedent and a template for what uh, my colleague at MH Carnegie, Mark Carnegie, says is thinking about capitalism 2.0, the idea that there are large chunks of the economy where you can generate reasonable financial returns do good and do so with a combination of business discipline and social purpose. And we don't think about that enough. And I think Good Start hopefully becomes a precedent for doing more of that. So in your own personal circumstances, um, you've, you, know, you, you live an affluent life and your book acknowledges the role of luck in, uh, in getting you where, you where you are today. But how do you stay connected to issues of indigenous disadvantage, long-term joblessness, uh, struggling schools? How do, you, how do you stay connected to, to the morals of this world? I think that's a challenge that Jen uh, and I take pretty seriously. We're both very conscious and I think one of the many things that we share is a, a strong value set about exactly that challenge, that we live in a bubble. You know, we live in a nice house, in a nice community and increasingly the fact that there are very different worlds that our kids don't necessarily get to see is, is, a, is not a good thing. In fact, it has the potential to be a toxically bad thing because we don't want them growing up with a sense that what we live in is representative necessarily of a much broader community. Um, so I think a couple of things, you know, one is Jen has always been deeply involved around the community and sport. We share, a, we share a, a love of sport. We both take very seriously the idea that we as a family should be seeing and doing different things. I think the opportunity that's been afforded through the programs and the people like the Anna Rubensteins, indigenous programs run by some just incredible social entrepreneurs like Jack Manning Bancroft at Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. And that's been such a gift in the life of our family. So. Jack, who I think is the most remarkable young social entrepreneur. Um, our daughter Anna was a mentor with AIM. Our son Nick has had work experience there. And so those experiences I think have been shaping, grounding, changing for them. Uh, Anna is teaching in a school which has a 30% indigenous population in Palmerston out of Darwin. And I suspect the influences and the opportunities to stay connected to that world, which hopefully Jen and I have done a reasonable job of furnishing will shape their view of their place in a broader community, not a community that is in through, seen only through the prism of growing up in a pretty privileged lifestyle in leafy Roseville. Mm. And in terms of the sort of insider-outsider dichotomy, I mean, you've, you're in some sense the consummate Australian insider. Dorman College, Harvard Business School, Macquarie Bank, uh, you worked for Andrew Peacock for, for a period. You dealt directly with uh, Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd through uh, the, the Good Start creation. Are there moments at which you feel like an outsider and, and what are they? Yeah, I think that notion of an insider, outsider is something that resonates with me. And I think it comes through in the book. I talk about this idea that we have particular tapes that play out over a long period of time. And as I reflected, there's a very strong tape for me around mall, around community. And so it meant that when I went to Melbourne University, there's a part of me which is the kid from a small country town with a public school background with a bit of a chip on his shoulder, you know, that wants to prove that he can make it. And that was certainly a tape. I, uh, and I think it comes through in the book, you know, when I arrived at Trinity College, feeling like an outsider, you know, I was one of 10 kids 
in a fresher year intake in 1979 of over 100, where overwhelmingly the, the 90% were Geelong Grammar, Melbourne Grammar. And I, I, I tell a story in the book of just feeling isolated, of feeling out of place. Now that changed pretty quickly because that turned out to be an incredible experience and transforming environment. But I suspect in different ways that tape of arriving at a place, whether it was Trinity College or Harvard Business School um, or Andrew Peacock's office or Macquarie Bank, there's a part of me which has always been, I kind of don't belong here and I'm not part of this club. But, but maybe I can learn, maybe I can grow and actually there's some pretty smart, interesting people here that I think I can learn from. And in each case, that was substantially the same. So, so I, don't think, I, don't think you ever, I don't think you ever lose that. I still think there are times now when in terms of the luck and privileged opportunities I've had, and, and particularly through the process of writing the book, you know, it takes you back and you think, how the hell did that happen? And for you, you've uh, you, you talk a lot in the book about some of the some of the mates who are around you. Uh, do you have a notion of a, of a band of brothers? Uh, what what do you what do you, what do your mates mean for you? What do they give to you? And how do you make sure you maintain those strong connections? Oh, that the circles of friendship which go back a long way. Uh, you know, they're they're the they're the underpinning. They're really the underpinning, and. I think it's for others to say, but I'd like to think I do a pretty reasonable job of staying close to people who go back a long way. Um, one one thing which I didn't mention in the in the book, but um, Jen uh, arguably made a bit of a tactical mistake. She said when I was when I was forty nine, looking at doing a party for my fiftieth. She said, "Darling, what do you really want to do?" And I said, "Well, let's have a party." But but, but I said, "Actually, if you." If you let me, if I'm allowed to do it, what I'd really like to do, I've got a bunch of mates, and at that point, a lot of them were, were flung to the kind of four corners of the world that go back, you know, 40 years, including um, more friends, and particularly a couple of one one guy I do mention in the book, Murray French, who was my tennis sporting mentor, is really fabulous, fabulous guy, who was a friend of Dad's, but a super close friend of mine, and then people that you connect and collect to, and I said I'd love to get that group together for three days and just have not just not just a set of drinking sessions but a mix of conversation a mix of sport because I reckon this group would really get on not everybody had met each other um, and so 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 I did that and and uh, I mean it was incredibly uh, flattering to me that there were ten of that group who'd come from overseas to be part of this three-day indulgence and there's a memorable photo with all of us and it was a a weekend which was kind of a different 50th that included in fact Arna Rubenstein who I mentioned who amongst other things is a master facilitator and so part of it was having the space and creating the conversations at that sort of reflective midlife 50th thing so it was a very different 50th but something that uh, I'll, I'll treasure forever and it was a it was a phenomenal weekend but I think it was a product of the fact that those friendships and those histories are hugely important to me. And I'd like to think the common denominators are people uh, that I've learnt from, people that have had a crack at things, they're quite an eclectic group, uh, and people where there's a, an authenticity. I don't like people who are pretenders, but people who have a go, who are honest about the things that haven't worked out well as well as the things, things that have. And that circle uh, hugely important to me. 
Were there uh, any of your friends who were somewhat surprised when they turned up expecting that it would be a, a three-day weekend of uh, boozing away to discover that there was a uh, facilitator on hand for a 50th birthday? There, there, there were a few who were taken aback at the front end. There were, there were a couple of my, uh, couple of my tennis mates who turned up with a very full esky, just to try and <laughs> just to try and ensure that the right tone was set. And I should say there was no sh- there was no shortage of, of alcohol. But um, when Anna at the end of the first day is conducting a yoga class on the on the deck because we're at uh, we're on the south coast. Uh, there were quite a few raised eyebrows, but it was all good. <laughs> so uh, you have in the book uh, the uh, the Norman Drummond questions, uh, three questions which uh, you argue that each of us should ask ourselves. So why don't I ask you those questions? Um, first one, Michael, who are you? I'm a kid who grew up in incredibly privileged circumstances courtesy of values around family and education and I'm intensely competitive and I've had to learn how to temper that competitive spirit on a lot of occasions and hopefully as I grow older the who I am still has the capacity to learn and grow my heroes and role models as I reflect on it are invariably people who are older than me who've got this capacity and energy to continue to grow and to continue to learn. And uh, I, I, the people that, are, that inspire me are those I want to grow up like, and I know that they've got that zeitgeist and energy of the 21-year-olds they were at 70 and 80 in some cases, and I think that's a fantastic thing to see. Why are you living and working the way you currently are? The, the, the constant question for me is how do you live a life that's grounded in values of purpose? and it took me a while to sort out how to play that out. And, but the balance of life to me, having had the privileged experience of working at social ventures and being involved in good starters, to use whatever talents or networks I now have courtesy of that experience, both in the business and non-profit worlds, to make a difference. And a difference is defined by social purpose outcomes. A difference is defined by actually having some impact on the trajectory of inequality and the slope of disadvantage, which I know is uh, a shared passion I have with you, that you look at the data. And I don't have your economic credentials, but I do share your alarm when you look at data that highlights the fact that if you grow up in a town like I did, a bottom 20% community on average, by the time you're 15, you'll be two and a half to three years behind a kid who grows up in a community like I now live in, in Roseville. That for a country that prides itself on the notion of a fair crack and a quality of opportunity is crap. And so if you can do something about that, that's what I'm about. Yeah. Robert Putnam's got a good book out called Our Kids. I don't know if you've read it, where he goes back to his hometown, which in some sense sounds a little like Morwell. And he describes how rising inequality in the United States has frayed the social fabric apart. So a town where uh, the more affluent families looked, used to look after the struggling families is now a town where uh, the, the social fabric's been ripped apart and there's no longer uh, uh, a spirit that uh, the better off families look after the worse off families. Uh, and so, yes, when you talk about returning to Morwell, I immediately thought of our kids and I wondered whether there is something to be written by someone in Australia about how 
for bottom 20% towns in Australia now, there's, there's less of a kind of social safety net to catch the vulnerable. I think that's such a powerful point. And it, it, I think that's that issue. We, you, you talked about us meeting at the Concilium and sometimes the Concilium is regarded as being quite right of centre, but this is not an ideological issue anymore. And what was at the mm. current year's Concilium and, it's, and the right and the left, I think, are aligned on this. There's a bubble. And the bubble is inhabited by uh, often parents with double degrees and their children having the privileged opportunity in terms of where they grow up, the universities they go to. And that, that is becoming an increasingly exclusive category. And that's a really unhealthy thing. And, you know, as you and I know, um, what it does do is it excludes those who've got the capacity and, and opportunity in many cases because there are simply low expectations or not the resources to support their opportunity. And that's, you know, that really is getting into the category of national disgrace. Mm, mm. Time's wings are flapping on our, uh, on our back. So let me give, give you the third Norman Drummond question. Uh, what might you yet become and do with the rest of your life? I think that the, the opportunity is to use whatever networks and skills I've got to, to actually really build consensus around what needs to happen. I think I, I realise now I've got um, good networks and access, particularly in the business community. And I think that can be used the right way, extremely influential in driving a more coherent policy and funding debate around particularly areas of early learning and education. So uh, there's a bunch of things that I'm really passionate and engaged about to try and support people like you in positions of politics and power to make changes so that you've got the backdrop of the political will and electoral support to do that. And I think business actually, and a lot of business people can do a lot more to smooth that pathway instead of the current environment where the, the cheap out is either lack of a policy framework or people pointing fingers at politicians and saying they're all hopeless, which I don't think is fair. Mm, mm. Naturally, I would agree. Uh, let me ask you a couple of questions about uh, your sort of how, how you live life. Um, how do you start your day? Do you have a particular routine? I uh, exercise is pretty important. So most days that if I, I'll be aiming to get some exercise in at the moment, I'm about to go over on a bike trip with some mates. So I was on the spinning bike this morning and then tried to do the healthy breakfast, the wheat bix. The, my wife makes an outstanding homemade muesli. The diet somewhat deteriorates in the evening. It's hard to say no to a yard beer or a decent glass of red. Um, but I'm a bit of a creature of routine, planted around exercise. And at the moment, there's a pretty broad portfolio of things, mostly social purpose focused with a bit of private equity stuff. So plenty of interesting things on the plate. What's the most important thing you do to stay physically or mentally healthy? Exercise. Is there something you used to believe that you no longer do? I believe in God. I didn't used to have a strong view on that. And uh, I don't tease it out in great detail, but there was what I describe as a, an evolving late life journey to a belief in Christian faith. I'm fairly secular in that, but I guess having done a fair amount of homework, I do have a view on that. Um, I'm not a proselytizing Christian, if I can put it that way, but equally, I wouldn't trivialize from a values, moral, ethics, comfort, mental sanity point of view. I find that enormously comforting, reassuring, and in particular cases where there's been a set of challenges, I think uh, it does help me. I think it helps contribute to me thinking and being better, a better person, better hopefully better, particularly around family around and around the most important relationships that I have, especially with 
with my wife and with my kids. So how does that manifest through sort of private actions of reading the Bible and prayer, or is it through more community activities of going going to church regularly and attending Bible studies? What's the what's the most important part of your faith for, for sustaining you? It's it's a hybrid of all of those things. I'm a unashamed sermon snob, so I I, I don't have it in me to go to church unless I feel like there's some <laughs> serious quality content. The the local church um, is actually very good from that point of view. John Dixon, who's a terrific communicator and first century classic scholar, uh, is always, always worth listening to do. I read a lot. And I think actually what happened in my later life, what I realised is my place and space of reflection is actually what I'm exercising. It clears my head. And uh, I think that idea when I'm running around on the bike and um, those who are close to me, particularly Jen, will attest that I'm not, great company if I don't adhere to my kind of daily ritual of getting exercise in some shape or form so that's a that's a big that's a big part of it and I think increasingly as, as you know as we're now empty nesters the time with Jen and the capacity and flexibility we've got to do more things together and to travel as a sort of an informal bucket list of places we're working our way through which and we both really enjoy the enriching travel and cultural experience of going to different places so uh, that's been that's been fantastic and looking forward to doing a bit more of that what advice would you give to your teenage self to be less judgmental i think um, i had the capacity probably into my 40s to be harshly judgmental of people instead of understanding where they come from i think the second thing was to be um, while, the, while I've always been competitive, I was, I was, a, I could be pretty unpleasant. Um, you know, there's a story in the book about me um, throwing tennis rackets, and I, I suspect my father would have looked at, with some alarm, he was reasonably patient at my 14, 15, 16 year old self as I was smashing tennis rackets and getting the shits on the tennis court. So it would have been nice to temper that, whether that would have been realistic or not. I don't think my 15 year old self, frankly, would have listened to that gratuitous advice. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, I, I, I enjoy a good wine and I have, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. So yes, they're the vices. And what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? They are certainly the, a combination of the values around home are deeply important. So I think the way mum and dad lived are profoundly important. And I think as is reflected in the book, there's a cocktail of in part SVA connected influences. Norman Drummond was deeply influential as a, as a, Norman became a close friend before we had any conversation around Christianity or ethics or, or faith and that 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 was quite revealing to me because I, my view was that um, in religion I judged it by a lot of people who talked the talk but didn't walk it but as I got to know Norman and, and understood how core a part of who he was and how he behaved but that he was in no way judgmental that was that was quite revealing and uh, very inspiring and it's in, in, in its own gentle way to me so that he, he's been a uh, very influential figure um, but I draw I'm a big believer and I think what's reflected in the book I've had the gifted opportunity of connecting with a range of really remarkable people and learning from a huge spread of people across 
education and ethics and business, people like David Clark, who, who uh, features in the acknowledgements of the book as somebody who was outstandingly successful in business, but a real Renaissance man with a strong set of ethics and values. So all of those things, I think, have contributed hugely to what I've had the capacity to learn. And Michael, we started today talking about Paddy and the effect that uh, 12-year-old Paddy had on your decision to jump ship. What's Paddy doing now? So, so Paddy, as is reflected in the end note of the book, um, did a remarkable job in setting up a social enterprise himself. He's now offshore. He's, he's in uh, Melmo. In fact, I got an email from him the other day, but he's, uh, he's travelling well. And uh, yeah, there was a great... There was a great symmetry in the story at the front end and the back end with Paddy. It was really nice to reconnect to him when he wandered into the office and I hadn't seen him for eight or nine years and he'd been involved in setting up this youth at risk program. So, uh, no, he's travelling well. Michael Trail, thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. Next week on the program... I speak with Annabelle Crabb about cooking with kids, having fun, and whether she really is Australia's number one Epicurean.